Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, Tech Chat listeners, and welcome to another episode of the AWS Tech Chat, uh, episode number 33. I'm one of your hosts, Dean Samuels, and today I'm joined by Gabe. Gabe, pleased to be having a chat with you today. Thanks, Dean. It's great to be here again. Awesome, awesome. It's actually been a while since we've uh, we've spoke. I think it's probably a few months now since we did the last uh, tech chat. Uh, I know you've been actually a very, very busy uh, guy uh, over the last couple of months. Can you maybe take us through what's uh, taken up most of your time? Sure. I mean, just a few things. I think we're all busy people at AWS. Uh, There's always so much exciting work going on. On on my side, uh, the most notable uh, event lately for me was I flew down to Australia to participate in AWS Dev Day in Australia, which took place in Melbourne this year. I gave a talk there on getting started building serverless data-driven web apps. Uh, it was pretty well received and I had a, a good time doing it too. Uh, it was four minutes of slides and 26 minutes of live coding, which was a bit of a gamble, but the demo gods were good to me and I didn't have anything go wrong. That's great. You did all the sacrificing necessary to, to make sure everything went, went okay? I did. The, uh, the sacrifices will, will be remain unnamed because I don't want to give away my secrets. <laughs> but uh, uh-huh. besides that, I've been uh, working on a blog post series uh, on a similar topic about how to build a serverless multi-user private photo sharing album application with React, GraphQL, and AWS Amplify. And it's a step-by-step guide to building a real non-trivial serverless app with these tools because I think that a lot of times you'll see these... Uh, demos uh, and blog posts that are you know five minutes long and those are really valuable but they don't show the whole picture and i thought there might be some value in doing a much more in-depth step-by-step guide and how you would build this up uh, on your own piece by piece so the first post should be coming out soon uh, if this sounds like something that's interesting to you if you follow me on twitter at gabe hollandby uh, uh, you'll get notified about when the posts uh, hit the internet excellent and lastly i've been prepping for a reinvent uh, one of the things i'll be doing it doesn't feel like it's that far away now. It's September, and so you know, it'll be November before we know it. And one of the things I'm doing is leading a workshop uh, for, on the mobile track, so I'm refining some content for that as well. Uh, and just to mention, speaking of AWS Dev Day Australia, uh, for those who weren't familiar with it, it's a day-long conference that's tailored specifically for the developer audience. Talks are each only 30 minutes long, which uh, forces us to be really uh, focused and to the point, and they're all at a technical level. Uh, we have a number of very popular sessions that day. So if you weren't able to make it, all the videos are now online. You can just search on YouTube for AWS Dev Day Australia 2018, and you'll see them. Uh, a few of the most popular sessions that day, just to call them out. Uh, mine was one of them, at least according to YouTube views. And that one's just called Getting Started Building Serverless Data-Driven Web Apps. Uh, there was one, a great uh, demo uh, by Jenny Davies. Her talk was adding AWS machine learning tools to your developer toolkit. Uh, The demo in her talk included having a deep lens that was trained with a model to help uh, with safety at uh, construction work sites by detecting if you were properly wearing a hard hat or not before you entered the site. And they did a live demo of that on stage and that that came off really well. Uh, And the third uh, popular talk, according to YouTube and such, is uh, deliver software faster and safely by building serverless applications. And uh, Gerardo Estaba gave that talk, including some nice demos showing off the SAM CLI for developing and debugging serverless apps locally, followed by automated canary deployments. Uh, 
Awesome. I see what about you? What about you? Oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, I see. I see a pattern there, just in terms of the popular uh, sessions, uh, all around serverless, all around uh, uh, machine learning. Really, the, the hot topics, hot areas that uh, we're constantly discussing with our customers today. Absolutely. You know, again, I think it all comes down to write less services yourself when you can leverage ones that are highly available and scalable and already built for you by great providers like AWS. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so it sounds like you've been quite uh, quite busy there, Gabe. Um, you know, like you yeah, mentioned. But what about you? Yeah, we're all busy at AWS, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, just just on the Dev Days, uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite events to uh, participate in, and also just to observe. You know, everyone knows that I'm a uh, infrastructure guy by uh, by experience, but uh, you know, to be able to go to these type of uh, Dev Days to get some insights in in really content that's delivered by developers such as yourself and you know for developers and just seeing how the the, the, the developer community community can really focus on innovating on application and software development rather than you know keeping the lights on and that undifferentiated heavy lifting um, but um, you know similar to you I've actually been working on certain events um, uh, that are coming up uh, within the Hong Kong and Taiwan uh, region so we actually have our Hong Kong region launch. Uh, uh, coming up in 2018. We're still focused on that 2018 uh, launch. So we've been working with some of our customers, uh, both on the enterprise startup and also public sector space, um, focused on that region launch, just collecting information about what our customers would like to see in terms of services um, in that three availability zone uh, region that will be launching um, this, uh, this year in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's going to be a really exciting launch. It is, it is, because, you know, we do see Hong Kong as a, a global financial hub. It's actually got the fourth highest GDP growth per capita across uh, Asia. But not only that, uh, it does attract a lot of um, large multinational organizations, um, obviously in the banking and uh, insurance uh, industry, but also other industries as well. And, and Hong Kong is really seen as a gateway to mainland China. So we're actually expecting some really great things once we launch that, uh, that particular region. Um, you know, just like you, I've also been working on uh, reInvent uh, 2018. Um, uh, just a reminder to everyone that uh, it is our uh, marquee uh, global customer event uh, that we that we are running in Las Vegas from November 26th to November 30th. Um, you know, I've had a great opportunity to present a boot camp or deliver a boot camp at a previous uh, reInvent. And, and whilst it did take up a lot of my time in terms of preparing that uh, uh, boot camp, it was very rewarding to to see how uh, the attendees could, uh, could actually leverage um, a lot of AWS technologies in a workshop environment uh, to see how they could achieve their their bis desired business um, outcomes and, and, and also address business challenges. So I'm sure that workshop you're working on, Gabe, is going to be quite uh, insightful for the attendees there um, as well. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm hoping to uh, meet a lot of you listeners at reInvent as well. So if you're tuning in right now and hearing us talk about this, please stop by and, and say hello to both Dean and I when you do see us at reInvent. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'll be doing at reInvent this year is actually participating in the social media coverage uh, for the event, which I'm, I'm looking forward to because not only does it give me an opportunity to move across all the different venues across the Las Vegas Strip, uh, but also allows me to keep fit because uh, having to walk between those venues uh, is going to, I think, uh, make up for the lost gym time um, uh, whilst I am in Vegas. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that. Hashtag comfy shoes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, uh, whilst reInvent is always an exciting uh, time for our customers for a variety of reasons, um, a highlight of that particular event is, of course, the new service announcements um, uh, that we do make. And, of course, we are planning to make... Uh, uh, a, a few of those also uh, this year. 
Um, now, now, Gabe, just on the event side, you know, speaking of reInvent, um, as our listeners yeah. probably know, uh, reInvent is our biggest show of the year. But there's always a lot of um, AWS events happening all around the world um, uh, before and after reInvent. Um, can you maybe share some of those upcoming events? Absolutely. Uh, so the other than reInvent, the other marquee event that we have is uh, AWS Summits. So there's one coming up in Toronto on September 20th. And on the same day in Shenzhen in, in China, we've got one on September 20th as well. We also have the Singapore Public Sector Summit happening on October 2nd right here in, I won't say my hometown, but it is where I live right now, Singapore. Uh, and Ottawa has a Public Sector Summit on October 29th. And where, where can our listeners go to to maybe find out more information about the specific dates and cities where we're going to be running those events? And, and what about those um, uh, listeners out there who may not actually be able to physically attend uh, those events? I mean, there's a lot of great content that we deliver there. You know, how can they get access to that type of content? Sure. Well, there's a number of ways. Uh, one would be uh, we generally record a lot of the content from these events and put it up uh, online afterwards. Generally, those uh, videos end up on YouTube. So if there's something specific you were looking for from one of these in-person events we just mentioned, you might just want to search YouTube uh, a little bit after the fact or look at the AWS uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but we also do a number of webinars uh, online as well. And you can find out more about all of those uh, at slash about dash AWS slash events. Excellent. Uh, so there's lots of uh, links to different event types and you can filter that and just say, show me only the webinars uh, in my local time zone. And you can see all kinds of content from how to build .NET serverless chatbots through how to build well-architected applications. And, and that's a great thing that we make those, uh, the, both the videos and the presentation slides and, and a lot of the content uh, available on demand for those uh, uh, attendees to the events who want to maybe get access to the content a little bit later, or of course, those who maybe uh, are, are, are unable to attend those events. Um, and so you can simply get a, uh, access to that content going to the URL you just mentioned, or maybe just simply just doing a, a search in your favorite search engine for uh, AWS events and checking out yep. our YouTube and SlideShare channels for Amazon Web Services. And it's really a good example of how we really try and reach out to a much wider audience than you know, what you and I and the rest of the solution architect and evangelist teams um, uh, can uh, can get access to in terms of customers. You know, obviously we are um, uh, only humans and we don't scale that well. So, um, you know, we need to be always looking at ways of how we can reach a wider audience. And, and we can really do this through these type of large scale physical as well as virtual events um, uh, to achieve that. Okay, Gabe. So of course there wouldn't be a tech chat without uh, a, a discussion about some of the new features and services that we've actually introduced over the last uh, few weeks. So maybe you can take us through some uh, specific uh, releases, features, or, or, or anything that we really need to highlight for our listeners. Sure. Uh, there are two that I'm pretty excited about, and they're both actually around a service that we have called AWS X-Ray. The first is that X-Ray added support for controlling the sampling rate from the X-Ray console. So X-Ray already had the ability to configure sampling rules from a JSON document that you could include with your code. But if you have multiple instances of a service running, each of them is sampling at that rate, and they're not coordinating their sampling. So you could end up with a higher aggregate sample count than you might want. And also, if you wanted to change your sampling rules, you'd have to redeploy your service. Uh, but now you can configure the X-Ray SDK to read the sampling rules from the X-Ray service itself. And so the service will manage a reservoir for each rule and assign quotas to every service to distribute the total sampling rate evenly between them. And of course, if you update the sampling config in the one central place in the cloud, you don't need to redeploy. So that's really neat. The other is that 
uh, Amazon API Gateway has added support for AWS X-Ray. Uh, and so you can use X-Ray to trace and analyze your user requests as they travel through API Gateway APIs to their underlying services. The integration works for all API Gateway endpoint types, you know, regional, edge optimized, and private. And if you call an API Gateway uh, API from a service that's already being traced, uh, API Gateway will pass the trace through even if X-ray tracing isn't enabled on that API. Uh, you can enable the X-ray uh, tracing for an API stage by using the API Gateway Management Console or using the API Gateway API or the command line interface. So those are really neat. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Some interesting um, iterations that we've done on, on two services there with the API Gateway and, and X-Ray. And I know we'll probably dive a little bit deeper into X-Ray um, later in this uh, this tech chat. Okay? Yeah, okay. But and when you said X-Ray, I was thinking of the the, the traditional X-Ray of uh, you know checking if you've got any broken bones as a rugby player or ex-rugby player rather. I've actually been involved in quite a number of X-Rays, but this is something different, I'm sure. I have only broken my wrist and that was enough pain for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Right, and, and uh, there's a couple of other um, uh, uh, new new services or rather new features that I just wanted to uh, bring up as well. Uh, sure. you know, Amazon Workspaces, um, as as most of our listeners will know, Amazon Workspaces is a uh, full managed desktop um, experience. So the ability to deliver both Windows and Linux uh, desktops um, over the uh, over the network to your uh, preferred device, whether it's your mobile phone, your tablet, your laptop, and of course your uh, desktop, and and also actually thin client. A machine. So being able to consolidate all of your desktop uh, configurations in a central location, that's the AWS uh, platform, and then being able to access that from anywhere. Um, well, we've actually, we've actually introduced um, web access support for workspaces running Windows 10. Yeah, uh, now th yeah so th this was previously only available for Windows 7. And, and what's um, really significant about this is there's no specialized software that needs to be installed on the, uh, on the user device. So you could use your Chrome or Firefox web browsers running on Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Chrome OS, et cetera, um, to actually access your, um, your Windows uh, uh, desktop experience. Um, you know, with web access, you don't, um, as I mentioned, have to download or install anything. But also importantly, you can actually use your standard ports, so port 443, for example, um, when accessing your desktop. So there's no additional ports that your network administrator or security administrator needs to, um, needs to open up in your firewall if you're sitting on your own uh, corporate uh, network. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. And so, so Gabe, you know, I know you're a hardcore developer and, and uh, you know, you like focusing on, on building uh, things, uh, building I applications. Do. Um, but do you like managing databases um, used by the awesome apps that you develop? You know, do you like um, patching, installing, updating, backing up, making sure it's resilient? No, back in the day, I have had to do my fair share of that work before moving towards managed uh, cloud database services. So the more I can let somebody else worry about that stuff, the better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't come across a developer yet who's actually said yes. So uh, it was no surprise uh, there, there, Gabe. And, and I'm sure our listeners are very much aware of our Amazon Relational Database Service, or RDS. Um, you know, RDS does provide a managed related relational database engine, such as MySQL, um, Microsoft SQL, Oracle, Postgres, MariaDB, and of course our own uh, Aurora uh, databases. Um, this is where we will uh, focus on removing all of that undifferentiated heavy lifting um, from, from customers and, and users such as yourself, Gabe, where you can uh, focus on building your applications rather than managing these databases. Well, one really significant thing that we actually announced um, uh, earlier this week is that we actually are working to bring the benefits of that relational database service or RDS to on-premise. 
virtualized environments. So customers can actually deploy RDS instances uh, in their own on-premise environment running VMware. Uh, now that's a pretty cool feature because now you've got all the benefits of RDS where you can actually deploy these database instances in minutes just through a couple of clicks. In the way you're already familiar with, right? Exactly right, exactly. And so you can make your backups to on-premise or cloud-based storage and establish even read replicas running on-premise or in the AWS cloud. And so your vSphere environment will actually take care of all the OS and database patching and will let you migrate your on-premises database to AWS with a single click. Wow, that's very interesting. And I think that's a bit of a surprising announcement too, in a way, because it's, it feels like a, a pretty big new capability uh, where previously customers could only leverage the benefits of RDS by you know, using what we had in the cloud. And for them to be able to take some of that on-premises, I think is going to be hugely valuable for some customers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Taking a lot of the, um, the, the services and features that customers use in the cloud, listening to their feedback, and actually making that available uh, to their own on-premise or edge environment. And I have a feeling we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in a, in a, in a, later in this tech chat as well uh, there, Gabe. But, but before we go to that uh, particular area of, of hybrid IT, um, you did actually mention two new features around AWS X-Ray. That, that really does sound um, really good. Um, and it's probably a good opportunity to dive a bit deeper and have a developer-oriented discussion around gaining observability into the systems we build and deploy. Now, I bet we have some listeners out there who have services deployed, but they're probably not using any sort of distributed tracing tooling. Um, so can we maybe take some time to talk about distributed tracing? You know, what is it? Why is it important? And, and how can you use services like X-Ray to help? Uh, maybe start with what is distributed tracing and why should I care about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, distributed tracing is the act of adding instrumentation around each of the service boundaries in your system. And so that lets you view the health of your entire system on a single pane of glass, or at least it can. Uh, and it makes it easier to identify performance bottlenecks uh, in your code in between different parts of your systems. Uh, for example, let's say we have a public API endpoint fronted by API Gateway and backed by a Lambda function. And let's say that that Lambda function uses a MySQL or a Postgres client to query a database, and it also uses an HTTP client to make REST calls to some other services that we have. Uh, and let's say that we get a report that some of the requests to this public API endpoint are taking a long time to respond. So in this scenario, what would you like to be able to know if we were to debug this together? How, what, what are the things you need to know? Right. Mm, okay, let's think about this. So we'd probably want to know if it was our database um, that was sometimes being slow. Uh, perhaps it could be one of the other uh, HTTP services. You know, it would probably be really helpful if we had a way to say, maybe show me the requests that took more than two seconds to finish. Uh, then yep. drill down into each one to see how long the database call took, how long each HTTP service call took, uh, maybe for each public request. Uh, I think you probably then notice a pattern that the sl slowness potentially is coming out from the uh, database call. Uh, then we'd want to be able to yep. view the query that was slow and maybe look for some uh, commonalities between our slow requests to see if we could figure out where the problem lies. So it's really peeling that proverbial onion um, to get, you know, get, get through the layers to really identify where that bottleneck might be. Exactly. So I like the, the way you said, you know, and we want to be able to look at each component part uh, of the you know, fulfilling a particular request, both within a service and uh, to the other services. Uh, and that's, that's what X-Ray gives you or, or any distributed tracing system should give you. Uh, so 
If you were to build this for yourself though, you would need to write some sort of instrumentation library that you would integrate into your, into your apps, into your services. That code would need to do something like create a unique request ID. If you hear people talking about correlation IDs, that's another term for that. Uh, and they would pass it, uh, pass it down to subsystem calls uh, after it was created. Or if a subsystem received one of those correlation IDs, it should you know, use that one uh, for its logging uh, and measuring and not um, create a new one. Of course, you'd want to measure the timings uh, for each system call for how long they took, uh, for each service, I should say. Uh, and you'd probably want some metadata attached to these timings as well, like what database query ran or which endpoint uh, with which query parameters was invoked for one of the subservice HTTP calls in our scenario, for example. Then you're going to want to send this annotated timing data to some data store. Uh, and you know, if you have a really busy app, you probably don't want to send all this data, but you might want to downsample these metrics. And so once you have all the metrics logged somewhere, you're going to need to build a front end to visualize, uh, filter, explore, and report on that data. Right, so it's a lot, and uh, of course, sounds complex. <laughs> it is, uh, but it's it's not uniquely complex, right? So I hope you don't try and build this yourself, right. because distributed tracing is one of these common cross-cutting concerns that pretty much everyone who deploys distributed systems has to deal with. Uh, and AWS, being in the business of providing services to handle this sort of undifferentiated lifting has uh, AWS X-Ray to help out. Awesome, here. okay, so maybe can you give, a, give uh, the listeners a high level overview of X-Ray? We have established it's not the X-Ray you go to the hospital for, it's something a little bit different. So, right. so maybe tell us a little bit about the service. So it's a service that collects data about requests that your application serves. And it provides tools that you can use to view, filter, and gain insights into that data to identify issues and opportunities for optimization. For any trace request to your application, you can see detailed information, not only about the request and response, but also about calls that your application makes to downstream AWS resources, your own microservices, databases, and HTTP web APIs as well. And so sort of the way this works is there's, a, there's an X-Ray SDK uh, that you can integrate into your services, and it provides kind of three key components. One is called interceptors, and these are the things that you add to your code that will trace an incoming HTTP request, right? So an interceptor kind of goes out on the, uh, on the edge. Uh, you have client handlers, and these will instrument the AWS SDK client itself uh, that your application or service uses to call other services. Uh, and finally, there's an HTTP client inside the X-Ray SDK that you can use to instrument calls to other internal and external HTTP web services, right? So even though behind the scenes, uh, the AWS services are all, can all be addressed over HTTP, we have a specific uh, client handler for measuring AWS uh, calls uh, more, uh, more comprehensively. But then if you're making HTTP requests to other systems as well, there's a way to wrap an HTTP client in the language of your choice, whatever you're using, that will also automatically instrument those calls as well. Right. Okay. So, so uh, users can leverage this X-ray SDK to embed these calls into their own applications, and and I guess the question then would be, so so how does it work in terms of where does the data go? Yep. So that that is the logical next question. Um, X-ray receives data from your services as something it calls segments, and it groups these segments that have a common request. Remember that that thing I talked about—a request ID or a correlation ID. It groups those into something it calls traces, and it processes the traces. And if you know, if it if it knows all all these different services that are contributing to a trace, then from that it can create a service graph and provide you a visual representation of your whole application system. Uh, and 
instead of sending data trace uh, trace data rather uh, directly to X-ray, the SDK can send JSON segment documents to a daemon process uh, listening uh, via UDP. And the reason why you want that is because you don't want to send all the data all the time, right? Uh, if you did that, you, you might be uh, overwhelming your, your, your network uh, if you have a very busy service. So instead, you want to be able to sample. And so what this X-ray daemon does uh, is it buffers the segments that come in in a queue, and it uploads them to X-ray in batches, so it's network efficient that way. And it can also handle the sampling. And that daemon is available for Linux, Windows, and Mac. But you probably don't even have to worry about that a lot of the time because if you're using any of our serverless offerings, our AWS Elastic Beanstalk or AWS Lambda, for example, it's already present in those environments. And so you can just use the SDK and not even have to worry about also having that daemon running somewhere. Awesome. Now, uh, the, uh, the, I mentioned the service graph before, right? So the X-ray takes this trace data and it makes a service graph. And the cool thing about the service graph is it shows... Uh, the client, your front-end service, the back-end services that your front-end service called to process the request and persist its data. And you can use the service graph to identify bottlenecks, see latency spikes, and find other issues to solve and improve the performance of your application. Oh, okay, interesting. So you actually mentioned quite a few bits of, let's say, jargon there, uh, Gabe. Um, mm, uh, yeah. Segments, traces. Uh, can you maybe give me a bit of a more background on each of these parts of X-Ray? And also, what's the difference between data and data? <laughs> Great question. Data is a character on Star Trek, uh, and also the word I use to describe, uh, you know, collections of bits. Data is uh, what uh, what Doctor Pulaski calls data, and he has to correct her and say that his name is right. <laughs> nice. Learn something new every day. What about the other segments, traces, etc.? <laughs> sure. So uh, segments and sub-segments. Uh, so these uh, computer resources that are running in your app. Uh, send data about their work as, as segments. Okay, so a segment provides resource name, details about the request, and details about the work that was done. So, for example, when an HTTP request reaches your app, it can record the following data, like the host, right, which could be a host name or an alias or an IP address, uh, and data about the request. Right? So what method came through? Uh, what was the client address? What was the path? What was the user agent string? Uh, what response uh, did your service give back, right? What status, what content, the work that was done. So start times, end times uh, for its subsegments. I'll talk about subsegments in a minute. Uh, and maybe any issues that occurred. So exceptions are a really good one, right? Uh, so if an exception occurred, maybe you also want to automatically capture uh, information from the exception stack. And so a segment can break all of this info down into subsegments. Now subsegment, subsegment, excuse me, it's just something that provides more granular timing on information and details about downstream calls that your app makes to fulfill the original request. And a subsegment can contain additional details about a call to an AWS service, an external HTTP API, or even like a SQL database call, like in the scenario we talked about before. And what's cool is you can also even define arbitrary subsegments to instrument specific functions or lines of code in your own application. So even if there's just a bit of, uh, let's say, hot code or code that you, you want timing information for that might vary from request to request, it's, it doesn't call out to another service, but you can still say, basically, I want to instrument this code with the subsegment name of blah, blah, mm -hmm. and then you'll see that you know, roll up into your service graph as well. And what about getting started? Yeah, um, so this is neat. This is how I got my hands dirty or how I got my feet wet. Uh, when I first uh, started using X-Ray, uh, there's a cool sample application that's pre-built. Uh, and if you want to play around with that before you integrate X-Ray into your own code, uh, you can give that a whirl. 
It's a simple tic-tac-toe game that was built as a Java app. And if you're not a Java dev, don't let that turn you off. You don't even ever need to look at one line of source code. Uh, you can deploy it with just a few clicks using Elastic Beanstalk. And that's actually also a really nice demo of Elastic Beanstalk if you've never used that service before. So uh, there's uh, in the X-ray docs, there's a section called sample application. You can see instructions there. Basically, you just download a zip file that is this Java app I'm talking about. You click a link that's pre-configured for you that takes you to Elastic Beanstalk and just says, give me a name for this API that you're making. You type whatever name you want. You wait a couple minutes while it provisions some resources. Then you just upload that zip file and you have an API that's working and it's sending uh, data to uh, X-Ray. I should mention, I also needed to add a permission for the IAM role that that right. uh, service is running as to be able to write to X-Ray, which makes sense too from a security perspective. But it, all in all, it only took me about five minutes to get up and running with this example app. And I was playing a couple of games of tic-tac-toe by <laughs> myself. You Did you stump yourself? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was, it, it, it's funny how when you try to do something mindless, you're just like, click, 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 click. I'm going to make X's win. And then before you know it, oh, <laughs> one. how did that happen? Anyway, uh, or knots and crosses. If you're not familiar with tic-tac-toe, I know Australian people call it knots and crosses. Knots and crosses, that's exactly right. Um, and, and so one of the, the, the key um, uh, requests from a lot of the developers is, you know, they sometimes aren't always online and they want to do some local development. So, you know, you mentioned about X-Ray and sort of the, the API calls and, and, and other things. But what about local development? So a developer is offline. Um, is there still a way to leverage uh, X-Ray in their applications? Yeah, totally. Uh, so you can run the X-Ray daemon locally. Uh, it runs natively on macOS or Windows or Linux. Uh, and if you want, you can also run it in a Docker container, uh, a Linux right. Docker container. So uh, you can configure the local X-ray daemon with AWS credentials also if you want to send the data to the cloud as well for local development you're doing before you end up deploying something uh, on AWS. Awesome. Sounds really good. So we've talked a lot now about distributed tracing. Uh, and that discussion evolved out of the what's new releases that I mentioned related to X-ray. Uh, why don't we do the same thing for something you brought up and spend some time talking about uh, the VMware RDS on-premises announcement and maybe just generally more about hybrid IT deployments. I'm um, great you asked that uh, that question there, uh, Gabe. I love talking about uh, hybrid IT. Um, you know, when you talk about hybrid IT, I, I, I prefer the word about word uh, integrated. You know, integrating uh, on-premise environments with uh, on-cloud uh, environments, whether it's AWS or other cloud uh, service providers. But really, that capability to seamlessly integrate um, uh, these multiple locations as if it was one. A logical entity that uh, application users, developers, administrators can actually leverage as if, and, and there would be no difference to them if they were using on-premise or um, in the cloud. And when we sometimes talk about customers' journey to the cloud, uh, sometimes they think there's really only one of two choices. They either build their own private cloud or they rip everything out and move to AWS. And you and I both know that that's not quite the case. It's actually yeah. not an all or nothing uh, choice. Um, now, whilst we believe in the fullness of time, most organizations uh, will uh, mostly all be will mostly be all in uh, uh, in the cloud. Um, we do see cloud as the really the new normal. I would even go so far as to say that cloud is the normal. Now we're looking at AI and deep learning is probably the new normal uh, now, and cloud's an enabler for that. Now, but getting back to um, hybrid IT, uh, we do understand that customers are at very different stages in their cloud journey. Um, there's customers who haven't even started that journey yet. There's customers that might be all in. And then of course there's customers uh, in, in between. And hybrid IT or integrated um, environments is really gonna be a, a significant space or a stage in that overall journey. 
Cool. So if this is a topic that's so near and dear to your heart, why don't you tell me and our listeners a bit more about the, these different aspects around hybrid or integrated IT? Yeah, absolutely. I'll maybe uh, go through layer by layer and, and maybe the history of uh, how customers and organizations have set up these uh, integrated or hybrid IT uh, environments. I think um, storage was really the first um, uh, area of, of this type of uh, integration. It, it, it's really you know, all, the, all, all roads lead to storage. We actually say all roads lead to Amazon S3. Um, and that's because, yes, all roads do lead to, to storage. Once you have that storage and collecting all that data, you uh, essentially have endless opportunities or applications that you could build around that uh, storage. It's all about the data. It is all about the data. And it's actually um, uh, not a coincidence that one of our first services, actually one of the first three services that we launched uh, back in 20, uh, 2006 was actually the Amazon S3 service. And what we actually saw um, is um, a, a significant uptake in a lot of um, vendors, um, uh, hardware manufacturers, as well as um, software vendors, in the ability to integrate storage appliances and storage software, like for example, back and backup and restore software um, with Amazon S3 and then later Glacier. And this type of integration really allowed customers to store a lot of their content in a very cost efficient, very durable and a very secure manner in services like Amazon S3 and Glacier. So we've seen things like storage appliances from NetApp and Tanzura and Zadara. So these make um, hardware appliances that actually have primary storage locally, but they're actually using secondary storage connecting to the Amazon S3 or Glacier API. So you, you have that benefit of multi-tiered storage leveraging cloud services. And of course, we have our own AWS storage gateway, which is a virtual machine uh, appliance that customers can actually run on-premise um, to again, store content on, on, on site or have it uh, replicated or backed up to the cloud automatically to the Amazon S3 and Glacier service. So would you say then that like the, the main advantage of these storage appliances over you know, why do they exist in the ecosystem is because other application developers uh, that might be working already in the enterprise space don't want to uh, or can't interface directly with S3 in their application code, right? They're used to talking for storage needs, something that, that's more local. It's just that's how they've authored their apps. Or from a regulatory perspective, they're required to keep some amount of data on-premises as well. And so these storage appliances say, we'll present an API that you're already used to using that may that might not look like the S3 API for data storage. And behind the scenes, this other thing will manage you know, when it needs to move data up to the cloud, maybe what it's going to keep cached, et cetera. Is that, is that the, the general value proposition there? Yeah, exactly. It's all of the above, uh, like you mentioned. You actually captured it quite well there. You know, you have uh, these legacy applications, for example, um, where you may not have the opportunity to make modifications or significant changes uh, to it for certain reasons. And so it wants to maybe interact with storage in a very traditional way, whether it's some type of block. Um, uh, 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 interface, uh, block device interface, maybe some type of shared file system interface like an NFS or a, a CIFS type uh, environment. Yep. You know, can't leverage the uh, object storage or even an API for object storage. So using these storage appliances really allows um, uh, applications to still interface in a very traditional way with the storage, but leverage more modern storage architectures like Amazon S3. And also absolutely, like you mentioned, where there might be some requirement from a security government, maybe a regu regulatory requirement that customers must keep storage on premise, um, but can actually use, for example, Amazon Glacier for archiving purposes, because they might need to store content, for example, seven years. Um, and so using Amazon Glacier right. to archive that, um, as that uh, second or third tier level of storage. 
And then, of course, working with um, uh, uh, backup restore uh, vendors, you know, your Commvaults, your Sapera, or high-speed file transfer, especially in the media space with Attunity and Aspera, it all comes back to the ability to integrate storage services like Amazon S3 with your on-premise uh, environments. And so that's where we really saw the first stage of hybrid IT-type architectures. Um, then we mentioned into network connectivity, where customers started to see the benefits of being able to start uh, compute-based um, uh, applications in the cloud. And so being able to interact with all of these various services, you need that network connectivity. Um, most of our listeners know about the VPC, the Amazon VPC or the virtual private cloud. So this is the ability to configure your own network space using your own preferred network address allocation, control how things are routed or um, um, uh, sent through the network environment, and even being able to connect to those uh, multiple virtual private cloud environments you've deployed either in a single region or maybe across multiple regions using services like Direct Connect, which is a dedicated line, a dedicated link um, from your preferred locations, whether it's your data center, whether it's your colo, whether it's your branch offices, um, connecting into various uh, Amazon um, uh, AWS regions, and then also using things like your virtual private um, uh, network or VPN. So leveraging the, your, your standard internet connection, but securely connecting to your VPC. So now what you're actually starting to see is the AWS region as just an extension to your existing environment, your ex existing data center. And so once you have that network connectivity up, your applications just um, assume right. that it's just all part of your overall uh, data center. Um, we moved into things like VPC peering. So this is once customers start deploying multiple virtual private clouds, again, within a region or across regions, being able to do a essentially a, a couple of clicks to actually have a routing automatically um, happening between those VPCs. A common use case is perhaps two different organizations who want to have some type of network connectivity. Maybe it's a service provider um, that is providing a particular um, service to a customer. So setting up VPC peering is a great way to securely allow access between the two networks without actually traversing the, uh, the internet. Um, just a question about yeah. that. I remember learning a while ago that you have to be careful with VPC peering uh, and sort of ahead of time know that you're not going to have any overlapping CIDR blocks in order for the VPCs to peer successfully. Is that still the case? Do I still have that right? Uh, that's correct, yeah. So okay. there is no natting per se uh, between the VPC right. peering. So you could build it and it can get quite complicated, but obviously we want to remove that undifferentiated heavy lifting from the customers. So yes, but it is important when you are planning out your uh, network configuration um, uh, with your uh, VPCs that you don't have those overlapping IP addresses. But in saying that, like I mentioned, there are ways to get around that if you do okay. happen to have VPCs with the same IP range. Um, one of the awesome uh, uh, new uh, features that we released um, uh, uh, very recently is the Direct Connect Gateway. So Direct Connect Gateway is actually an extension to the Direct Connect service where your Direct Connect um, point of presence, so a physical space, uh, physical location through a network provider um, where you actually connect your dedicated line to, which then actually connects you to a region. The Direct Connect the Gateway actually allows you to connect to any VPC across any region that you have access to around the globe. So, for example, we have a direct connect point of presence in Hong Kong, uh, but what mm -hmm. can actually happen is our customers can, in Hong Kong can physically, physically connect to that uh, point of presence, but then configure a, um, a, a, a VLAN or a logical link 
either that direct connect to any VPC they've deployed, whether it's in Singapore or the US or in Europe or in South America, essentially any of the AWS regions they have access to, they can use Direct Connect Gateway to then add routing between those different regions. And that traffic goes over Amazon's private exactly. network, right? Yeah, absolutely. It goes over the network backbone, um, which is uh, really great. So it's uh, essentially these dedicated lines for, for Amazon. That's actually a good call out. Super cool. Yeah, and and then the one that really excited me, only because customers have been asking uh, for this um, for a while, is we've now allowed customers to bring their own IP ranges, their public IP address spaces, a slash twenty four address space or larger, that they can actually bring over to the AWS region of their choice. So we'll start advertising those public routes on behalf of the customer. Sorry, those public IP addresses on behalf of the customers, so that they have to they don't have to do many changes if they actually want to move their entire data centers or a part of the data center across to um, AWS. Um, and then, of course, we have the VMware Cloud on AWS. Uh, so VMware Cloud on AWS isn't specifically a service offered directly by AWS. It's actually offered by VMware. But what we've yeah. actually done is we've partnered with VMware where they can deploy their VMware technology into our, into our physical regions and onto physical bare metal hardware. So customers have the same VMware experience using their VMware tools that they do on premise when deployed to the cloud. And so VMware recently announced that they'll be supporting the uh, 18 AWS regions over the course of 2018 and 2019. So customers now can have that semi seamless hybrid experience for their virtual machine environments across the on-premise VMware and now in the cloud VMware as well. Got it. And, and can the VMware cloud uh, on AWS uh, manage both some you know, VMs that they have on-premises in the same sort of management pane as what it's managing for cloud VMs? Yes, exactly. Okay, so cool. if they're using some, something like vCenter, so it's that single pane of glass where you can, you can manage your virtual machines on-premise and in the cloud. So no, no need to relearn additional tooling. That truly is a hybrid IT. Exactly yeah. right. Absolutely. Nice. Okay. Well, all that's really cool, but I think we should also mention that it feels like we're pushing more towards not just letting customers do more in the cloud, but also giving more and more capabilities out towards customers at the edge. Yeah, right? absolutely. And this is really the exciting part for me anyway, when we talk about hybrid IT, is what can customers do at the edge? You know, when we talk about edge computing, it's really that ability for customers to run uh, cloud-based services, but either in their own on-premise environment or maybe in a geographically distributed uh, manner. So if you think about things like IoT, you know, so being able to run a lot of uh, cloud-based services in your IoT environment where there might not be some reliable network connectivity or maybe it's not cost-effective to be constantly connected to the, um, to the internet or even sending large amounts of data over the internet. But you still want to have the, uh, the advantage of running um, cloud services like, for example, AWS Lambda, maybe even Amazon EC2, and maybe even your, your deep learning and artificial intelligence type models as well, running it on-premise. Now, whilst we're rapidly expanding our global infrastructure, um, you know, we have a footprint of over 130 POPs providing uh, CDN and DNS services using our CloudFront and Route 53 um, services respectively. And of course, we have new AWS regions that are being launched over the coming months and we'll see early into 2019, um, uh, nearly 22 regions that we've uh, actually announced uh, already, Hong Kong included, which is quite exciting. Um, but we do understand there is a need for customers to be able to execute their business and application logic and also analyze data either in their own data centers or at the network edge. 
And so we've actually introduced previously services like Greengrass. So AWS Greengrass is essentially a, a kit that allows you to deploy onto um, uh, uh, custom devices, essentially devices that have a CPU, uh, ARM-based CPU or an x86 CPU and some memory. And so what this basically does is provide multiple functionalities. It can be an IoT um, router and collector. So basically routing and collecting messages from your different things that might be in your IoT ecosystem. It now can actually yep. run AWS Lambda. So your event-driven um, programming and functions um, actually running it at the edge without requiring any cloud connectivity. And what's really exciting is we've actually launched the um, Greengrass machine learning inference, inference capability. So now what you can actually do is you can train your um, machine learning models in the cloud. So using something like the uh, SageMaker service to do all the training. But once you've done that training, you can deploy the model itself into the Greengrass appliance running on site or running at the edge software uh, on it. And, and speaking of which, we also do a, have another device that runs Greengrass and that's the AWS Snowball Edge uh, uh, device. So these are highly durable um, uh, devices that was initially provided um, to uh, to allow customers mm. to perform large scale um, or large volume data migration. They use this physical snowball edge device or, or, or the, just the snowball uh, device where they can actually copy content data, large amounts of data, up to 100 terabytes of data to this individual device, ship the device to an AWS region of their selection, and then we'll actually ingest the content on that device in a very secure manner to services like Amazon S3 or Glacier or whatever the customer preferred. But with the AWS Snowball Edge device, we've actually also introduced the Lambda service. Um, but one really cool thing is that customers can actually now run EC2 instances on these devices as well. Yeah, so it's uh, yet another example of taking a cloud-based service, in this case EC2, and making it available also at the edge or in a customer's own uh, data centers. And so customers may develop and test in AWS, but then deploy the applications on devices in remote locations um, to collect, pre-process, and return the data. And we've seen a great interest in this uh, area because common use cases include things like data migration, obviously what it was originally designed for, but now also things like data transport, image collation, IoT sensor and stream capture, and of course, machine learning. Um, and like I mentioned, the Snowball Edge devices are running AWS Greengrass. And so, Gabe, yeah, probably just want to close off in, in one other area where we're seeing the ability to bring cloud-based services to the edge or to the data center. And it's what we mentioned before in the uh, what's new type releases. Um, the recent announcement of a preview release of managed databases in VMware and hybrid environments um, really provides that capability to run your commercial database engines like Microsoft SQL and Oracle, and also open source databases like uh, MySQL, Postgres, yep. and MariaDB. Um, on your VMware infrastructure. So as mentioned before, the VMware um, uh, uh, vCenter will automate the database provisioning, operating system and database patching, backup, pointing mm. time, restore, um, storage and compute scaling, instance health monitoring, and of course, failover. So all of the great features that uh, our listeners come to expect from the RDS service in the cloud can now be done on-premise. Uh, on um, you can also use RDS for VMware to enable low-cost, high-availability hybrid deployments, yep. uh, database disaster recovery uh, to AWS, so using things like read replica features that RDS provides, um, bursting um, into, into the cloud, and, of course, long-term database archival to Amazon Simple Storage Service as well. Oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, quite a lot of things there that uh, where we are bringing out and innovating and iterating on when it comes to, to hybrid IT. Uh, and, you know, again, whilst we do believe that in the fullness of time, 
most organizations will be running yes. a majority of server and services platforms in the cloud. We do understand that hybrid IT is going to be a significant and important stage in that uh, overall uh, overall journey. So, Gabe, I think uh, we're probably running a little bit over time more than usual, but uh, obviously some really deep discussions in, in various areas there. Um, you know, it was great uh, to, to be able to, to learn a little bit more about X-Ray and, and some of the things we're doing cool. there. You know, you're learning something new every single day, which is one of the great things about working uh, at AWS. It was nice to learn a bit about hybrid IT from you as well. Excellent. So both learn from each other. Well, I look forward to the next podcast that we do together. We'll have to think about what type of topics uh, that uh, we should uh, we should talk about. It'll be great to hear from our listeners, actually, if they have any preferred Absolutely. Topics, please do do let us know. But uh, I think we'll, we'll call it a day there, Gabe, and uh, we'll talk to you on the next one. Great, Dean. Thanks. As usual, it's a pleasure talking with you. And yeah, listeners out there, if you have a feedback for us or you know requests for content you'd like us to cover in future episodes, uh, you can tweet at me at Gabe Hollandy, uh, or you can uh, reach out to Dean. Uh, Dean, how would you like people to? Ah, uh, you can uh, reach out to me maybe through Gabe Hollandy. <laughs> ha. Okay. So uh, reach out to me uh, if you if you have some feedback, and uh, I'll gladly uh, take that on board, and uh, we can work towards making these uh, tech chat episodes more of what you want. Awesome. Thanks, Gabe. We'll talk to you on the next one. See you, Dean. Cheers. Bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.